0: Father, we just come to your word today and we so grateful for the revelation that you've given us here, the mysteries that are open up, Lord, and as we look at these ch- chapters 10 and 11 and 12, Lord, you've given us kind of an interlude in the great tribulation and and I think your purpose, Lord, I I think we're seeing it is that you're trying to set these characters up and develop this plot and uh, you go you're going back and forth through history just to show us uh, uh, why there's a tribulation and uh, Lord, just to, to teach us more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because that's what this book is all about, Lord. It's about you. It's about who you are in Christ. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's way beyond human understanding, Lord, but uh, by your Spirit, uh, we can understand the things of God. You promised us that in your Word. And so, Lord, we're just grateful for, for the things you're teaching us. And, and Lord, I ask that uh, uh, today... Uh, you get us through this text, and uh, we have a better understanding of why there's a tribulation, a better understanding of just who Christ is. So we just ask for all of these uh, uh, blessings today on our study, and Lord, may we bless you with our, with our thoughts and with our worship as we look at this great passage. We just ask for, uh, again, all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Last year, and we talked about this last year, there were a lot of these prophecy gurus who were going around and they were saying that uh, on September the 23rd, which was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, that uh, Revelation 12 would actually be fulfilled as the stars in the heavens painted this picture of the birth of jesus christ and then we would go that we would have the rapture and then we would go into the great tribulation a lot of people were predicting that well i don't think it happened if it happened you guys are in trouble and i'm in trouble too but i don't think it happened and i really i know it didn't happen because we know that before the great tribulation begins uh, and that the rapture has to take place. We know that the Antichrist has to be revealed. And when he's revealed, everybody who's who's born again is going to know who the Antichrist is. And so the Antichrist has not yet been revealed, so we haven't entered into the great tribulation. But you can see how these people saw this picture in the stars, I don't know if you have your bulletin with you, but you can take a look at that uh, picture in the, uh, on the cover of the bulletin, and let me read to you uh, one astrologer's account of what ta- took place here on September the 23rd. Listen real carefully. He says, On S- November the 20th, 2016, uh, Jupiter, the king planet, entered the womb of the constellation Virgo where it remained for exactly, now this is pretty amazing, exactly 42 weeks. And 42 weeks, you women know, is the precise length of a woman's gestation period. And then it exited Virgo on September the 9th, 2017, and on September the 23rd, the moon was right at the feet of Virgo And the nine stars of the constellation of Leo plus the three planets, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, a total of 12 stars appeared above the head of Virgo. So you look at this and you actually can see a picture. If you want to make it that, you can actually see this picture of Christ being born. Now, the problem with that kind of thinking is that there are a lot of constellations in the stars and there's a lot of movement in the stars all the time. And I think you can almost make the stars say anything if you look hard enough. But that was a pretty uh, amazing sight. Now, there are some prophecy experts that believe that on the night that Jesus was born, something very similar ha- happened. As the Bethlehem star made its movement through the stars, it actually painted this picture of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'm more inclined to believe in that than I am to believe in this, that this was the picture that was painted back on September 23rd of 2017. Some people believe that this is not going to happen, this event in the skies. In fact, it's going to be even more graphic then, and everybody's going to be able to see it, and it's not going to happen until uh, sometimes in the future, maybe during the Great Tribulation. Now, I'm convinced that what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 12, is not something that took place last uh, September. And I don't believe it's something that's going to take place in the future. But it's a picture that's given to us symbolically uh, to paint some out, paint out for us, some, or paint for us some of the greatest events in all of history. And the greatest events in all of history, from our standpoint, is the birth of Jesus Christ the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And along with that, the fall of Satan. So when we come to chapter 12, it really doesn't matter whether or not these are astronomical signs or whether they're symbolic pictures. The purpose is the same. And here's the purpose of Revelation chapter 12, is to develop the ultimate Line. And the ultimate plot line uh, is the revelation of Jesus Christ as Almighty God. That's what we're looking at. And that's what we're going to see th- th- in chapter 12. We're going to see the development of that plot as uh, Jesus Christ is born and uh, he's crucified and he ascends to heaven and uh, eventually becomes, establishes his kingdom here on earth. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at these signs in Revelation chapter 12, not with the goal of figuring out where they fit in the stars, but with the goal of figuring out where they fit in the book of Revelation. So that's what we want to do. So uh, pick up with me in chapter 12 of Revelation, and let's read the first few verses there. John says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Now if you go to Revelation chapter 13, you're going to see that's a Uh, You're going to see that picture again, or a picture very close to that again, so hang on to that. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. Notice child is in caps. There's a reason for that. I'll explain that in a minute. As soon as it was born, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod iron and her child was called up to God and to his throne. Now, we see three main characters here in this passage. Can you, can you spot them? You've got the woman, you've got the dragon, and you've got the child. So what we want to do here is try to figure out who are these three characters. Well, first of all, who's the woman? There are all sorts of theories as to who the woman is. Now, most of you probably already know, so don't don't yell it out. We don't want to, those that don't know, we want to hold hold the suspense here. But who's the woman? Well, back in the 1800s, Mary Baker Eddy said that she was the woman. She was the woman who gave birth to her child, the uh, Christian Science Church, and that the dragon was the mortal mind of men who tried to destroy her religion. So if you went after her against her religion, then you were the beast, you were the dragon. I don't think so. I think she was wrong. Some expositors, and a lot of expositors, say that the woman is the church, that the woman is the church. The 12 stars, you got the 12 elders of the church, and so you could see, you know, in heaven, so you could see maybe a picture here of the 12 stars, but there's a big problem with that interpretation because the church didn't give birth to the child. The child gave birth to the church. And so the church can't be the answer here. Now, most Roman Catholic theologians believe that the woman is Mary, the queen of heaven. And you got it. There's some merit in that interpretation because Mary did give birth to the child. And later on, we're going to see how the child flees, and we see in this passage here how the devil's ready to devour the child as soon as uh, the child is born, and then the woman has to flee. Well, that's exactly what Mary did. Mary and Joseph fled Bethlehem as soon as the child was born because an angel warned them that, that Herod was going to try to destroy the child. So... There is some merit to that, but it breaks down. It really breaks down, and here's where it breaks down when you see this garland of 12 stars above her head. That's got nothing to do with Mary. And later on, as we advance in this passage and we advance in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that this woman is persecuted throughout the Great Tribulation. She's persecuted throughout history. Uh, And so... Uh, uh, Mary doesn't fit that bill. Now, Mary suffered some persecution, but she doesn't surface the kind of persecution that you see in the rest of this chapter and in the rest of Revelation. So I I have no doubt that it's not Mary. It's not too hard to figure out who this woman is because in biblical numerology, what does the number 12 always refer to? It always refers to a specific people or a nation and so this is a nation or a people group that gave birth to the messiah well class who is that that's israel we know that's israel how many tribes does israel israel have it has 12 tribes you remember joseph's dream over in genesis chapter 37 he saw the sun and the moon and the and 11 stars and himself, who is the 12th star, bowing down to him. All right, now, who's the sun in that picture in Joseph's dream? It's Jacob. Who's the mother? His, I mean, who's the moon? His mother. And so the moon and the sun and the stars represent who? They represent the nation of Israel. And that symbolism of a woman representing a nation is consistent throughout Scripture. Uh, and when we get to Revelation chapter 17, you're going to see this great woman, this mystery harlot, Babylon, the mystery Babylon, and she's a woman. Uh, th- think about the church. The church itself is described as a woman. We are the bride of Christ. We're a nation of born-again believers, and we're the bride of Christ. And so this woman is used for this body of of uh, people uh, throughout Scripture, and so uh, you, you, we know, you know, without a doubt here that this has to be Israel. Now, it's really interesting that in going back to the passage now that she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and so what we have there in that little passage is a history of is, uh, is Israel's history in a nutshell. Because you read from Genesis to Malachi until Christ was born, and Israel had a pretty rough time of it. They had a lot of labor pains. You remember the patriarchs, how hard they had it. Remember how Jacob described his life to Pharaoh? He said, my life is is short. Now, it really wasn't that short. He lived over 100 years. But he said, my life is short, and it's been full of pain, full of pain, full of labor pains," and And he was like, you know, one of the fathers of the nation of Israel. You go to the, the nation when the nation was was in Egypt. Look at how they suffered so much pain as they were in bondage. And then they crossed over the, the Red Sea and they went into, supposedly they were heading to the promised land and they didn't make it in. An and then they suffered all sorts of pain for 40 years in the wilderness. Then you look at their history in the judges, you look at their history in the kings, you look at their captivities, and they had a life. Full of pain. And all of that pain was used to bring them to a perfect time where that nation could birth the Messiah. Well, we'll get back to the lady here in a minute, but let's talk about the second main character here that we're given in this passage, and that is the great dragon. Now, the great dragon is going to try to put you all to sleep here today, and don't let him do it because you need to learn about this. He, he's, he's not your friend, he's your enemy. So so pay attention. So we got the great dragon. Now, who's the great dragon? Everybody knows who the great dragon. is. He's Satan. Look down at at verse number 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now, where are we at in this passage, this first passage that we've looked at, what we're given, we're given a panoramic view of Satan's role in all of history. That's what we're given here. We're not in the Great Tribulation at this point. We're given a view, uh, we're given a a panoramic view of his his role throughout history. And and the first thing that Satan did, remember, we don't know what happened to him way back when, but he was in heaven. He was in heaven and he was there and he was one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all angels. And uh, he decided he wanted to be God. He rebelled against God. We know in Isaiah chapter 14, Uh, It says, how you have fallen, Lucifer. And why did he fall? Isaiah tells us. He says, I have set, this is Satan speaking. He says, I have set my throne above the stars of God. And so he fell. Now, how many demons fell with him? Well, you go back to this passage, and you can see that, that he took, in verse number four, that he took a third of the angels with him. A third of the stars, a third of the angels. What do we call those angels now? They're fallen angels. They're demons. So he takes a third of the angels with him. And uh, uh, then also in verse 4, look back at verse 4, as soon as Jesus was born, that we're back into the, this Satan's role in history, as soon as Jesus was born, he set out to do what? He set out to destroy Jesus Christ. Now, that's, all you have to do is read the Gospels, and you see how he did that from, from G- how he sent Herod over to Bethlehem and sent Herod's armies over there to kill all the babies uh, two years and under, ha- hoping that he could kill Jesus Christ. Now, if you read the prophets and you read the Old Testament, you see Jesus all over the Old Testament. You read the book of Daniel, now, the same book that Satan could read way back before Jesus was born. You read the book of Daniel, and there's a prophecy in there that prophesies about the birth of Jesus, and then it says he's cut off. Now, it doesn't tell you anything about the interlude of, uh, that takes place. Then he cuts off, and then he comes back and rules the earth. He doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything about that interlude of 2,000 years or so in the book of Daniel. So Satan's reading the same book, and he knows that he feels in his heart that he can destroy the Messiah. And so as soon as the woman bears the child, as soon as Israel bears the Messiah, Satan sets out to destroy the Messiah. He used Herod to do that, and then Satan came at Jesus himself. Remember in the wilderness, he came at him and he tempted Jesus. And what was his goal in tempting Jesus? He thought he could tempt Jesus into giving up his mission of dying on a cross in order to gain the riches of this world. And Jesus didn't want the riches of this world. He didn't need the riches of this world. He is the king of this world. And so he couldn't get him there, and so what did he do? He arranged these circumstances, and I mean from the moment Jesus hit the earth, Satan was set on having him killed. And he put it in the heart of the Jews and the Romans to kill him. He even put it in the heart of one of Jesus' disciples to kill him. That's how ruthless is. He even went and possessed Judas in order to have him killed. And I have no doubt when Jesus was hanging there on the cross he thought he had devoured him he thought he
1: had destroyed him He was wrong Thank goodness he was wrong Now
0: when we get to if you look back at verse 3 it describes his role in the great tribulation in the great tribulation He's going to possess the Antichrist. And he's going to possess the kingdom of the Antichrist. Those are going to be his. And we're going to learn more about his role here in a few minutes, and we'll see the rest of it in the rest of Revelation. But let's go to the third main character for a minute. Who's the third main character that we are introduced to here? The child. Now, who's the child? The child of the woman. Who's the child of the woman? No doubt that's Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the one who will rule and reign over the nations. And at his first coming, he died on a cross for our sins. He was resurrected and then caught up and ascended to his throne, which is the throne of God. Now, those are the main three characters. Now, he's introduced the main three characters. He goes back to the Great Tribulation. Now, you got to... Again, when you study Revelation, if you try to put all of this in some kind of chronological timeline, you're gonna in some kind of chronological sequence, and you think all of this is in chronological order, you're going you're gonna to come up with some really bad interpretations. So what he's done, he's introduced to us Satan. He's introduced to us the child. He's introduced to us the nation of Israel. All of these are the great players in the Great Tribulation, and now he comes back to the Great Tribulation in verse number 6. So let's read verse number 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place. Who's the woman? Israel. Where she fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. How many months is that? Forty-two months. How long is the gestation period of a woman bearing a child? Forty-two weeks. That's interesting, that's the same number, that 42. And I'll tell you what, I believe what God's saying to us right there is that Israel in the great tribulation is being prepared to be birthed as a new Israel. You go back and you read Zechariah, and we're going through Zechariah right now on Wednesday night, and you read about an Israel that's coming that's so much greater than any Israel that's ever existed before. You read in Zechariah about an Israel who is going to love God and they're going to be, God is going to be their God and and they're going to be God's people. They never really have been that. But once the great tribulation is over and they've gone through this gestation period, Of 42 months, they've been prepared. They're going to finally receive their Messiah. God is going to pour out his spirit on them, and they're going to look at him, and they're going to realize that he's the one that they killed, that they pierced, and they're going to mourn for him as a mother mourns for her only son. And so God, the whole purpose in all of this part of the tribulation, not isn't to deal with the church. The whole purpose of this part of the tribulation is to prepare a remnant for God. To prepare Israel to be the Israel that they're really meant to be, but if God doesn't hide them, if God doesn't protect them, the Antichrist—I mean, the Antichrist and the devil—hates them, and so he's going to try to destroy them. I mean, we'll see in when we get down to verse 13 here in a minute that the devil is is, is set on destroying Israel, but in the Great Tribulation he can't destroy them. Because the remnant flees into the wilderness for the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Now let's set the scene again for a minute. The Antichrist comes on the scene. The church's rapture. The Antichrist comes on the scene. I believe there's been some great war leading up to these events. And everybody's ready for peace. They'll do anything to have peace. And this war centered around the nation of Israel. Now, if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you read Psalm 83, you read some of these other prophecies about this coming great war. Some people say that's Armageddon. I don't necessarily think so. I think very likely we're going to have some war before that. And when that war comes, everybody's going to, and I think the Muslims are going to be defeated in that war, and th- this European uh, Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire is going to to come into play and everybody's going to be crying out for someone who could lead them into peace, including the Jews. And guess who it's going to be? He's going to come riding in on a white horse. We saw that in the early part of Revelation. And he is the Antichrist. And he's going to actually bring peace to the world for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. We see that throughout Scripture. All right, now. Then what happens? We saw in all of this interlude here, we've been shown these things. For those first three and a half years, these two witnesses are going to come into Jerusalem, and they're going to come to the Temple Mount, and they're going to say the Antichrist is a bad guy. The Antichrist is a bad guy, and you guys are heading for judgment, and he's going to warn Israel. And some of the people in Israel are going to listen, but most of them aren't. And, And the world's going to be all excited because finally there's peace and safety. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, Beware when they say peace and safety, for sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. So, in the middle of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is tired of listening to these two witnesses. He hates Israel. He's hated Israel all along. His whole intention all along has been to destroy Israel. But now he comes in, to the Temple Mount, and he kills the two witnesses, and he declares himself to be God. We call that what? The abomination of desolation. After that point, all hell is going to break loose on this earth. It is going to get worse than it's ever been. Now, that fits exactly with what Jesus says over
1: uh, in the Olivet Discourse. So flip with me over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 24, and watch how this all fits in.
0: I mean, you go back to Daniel, we can make it fit in. You go to Zechariah, you can make it fit in. That's why I listen to people, and they teach Revelation, and if you haven't, or they read Revelation, or they're prophecy guru guys, but they really haven't looked at the whole Bible's picture of these events, and then they try to force these things into a chronological order and they come up with all sorts of wild interpretations. And so you've got to be aware of that kind of teaching because this should fit like a glove if it's right. So listen to what Jesus says. Now, I'm, I'm over in Matthew chapter 24. Pick up in verse number 15. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, everybody there, 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, it doesn't say they're in the temple. I think that's right. I, I personally don't believe the temple will be rebuilt when this takes place. I believe that scene will be exactly like it is today. If you were to go to Israel, you'd go to the temple mount. The holy place is, it can be translated temple. Actually, Heron is the word that's usually translated temple and that's not the word used here and it's not the word used in Revelation. The word used in Revelation and the word used here is Naon, which is the holy place. It refers to the holiest of holies but it refers to that whole temple mount area because it's holy to God. Your heart is Naon; It's a holy place. It's the holiest of holies of God if you're a born again believer. So anyway, he, he, he... when you see him standing in the holy place, the two witnesses are dead. And who's he speaking to here? He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the Jews. And you're going to see this. He said, you better run. You better run because things are about to get very difficult. The worst tribulation that's ever been is about to take place. He says, whoever reads this, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea. Now, he doesn't say those who are in America. He says those who are in Judea. Judea, you can't be any more specific than that. That's Jerusalem. That's Israel. Those who are in Judea flee to the wilderness. The, the wilderness there is synonymous with mountains. Flee to the mountains. And then let those who are, then he says, let him who is in on his housetop, not go down to take any. I mean, get out of there right then. And let him who was in the field not go back to to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies. I mean, it's going to be tough for you to get out of there. That's what he means by that. Woe to you. you mean, It's going to be hard enough for a strong man to flee. But you better flee. Woe to those who, who, who are dealing with children. But wo- he says, uh, and pray that your flight not be in winter on the Sabbath, because on the Sabbath they get tricked. See, they would, they're, they're worshiping the Sabbath, and they doesn't they don't even know what's going on. You go to Israel today, and you there on the Sabbath. Those people, man, it becomes like a ghost town in Israel. Uh, I mean, they're all hidden away. That's why in the Six Day War that they were attacked on the Sabbath, because people the the Arabs thought that they could catch them off guard, and they really did. And then in verse number 21, it says, For then there shall be such great, there shall be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall there, nor ever shall be. In other words, the greatest tribulation that this earth has ever seen, the greatest trials, the greatest destruction, the greatest holocaust is going to take place at this time. And so they're to flee. Now, where do they flee? They're to flee to the mountains. That's the same thing going back to Revelation that we see here in the book of Revelation. Go back to Revelation
1: chapter 12 again. So they're going to flee to the mountains.
0: Some scholars believe that they're going to flee to Masada. Most prophecy scholars and I, don't, I hate to use that term, scholars, for people who, who claim to be prophecy experts, but they, a lot of them say, these experts, so-called experts, that Israel is going to flee to the ancient city of Petra. And if you were to go across the Jordan down there at Masada, out a little bit further uh, east into, the, into what's modern-day Jordan, you would find the ancient city of Petra. And that. City is carved out of a mountain. And so you have a third of the, we're going to see in a minute, that two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. So you have a third of them fleeing to the ancient city of Petra. Now, if all the prophecy experts believe they're going to flee to the ancient city of Petra, where do you think Satan thinks they're going to flee? Probably to the ancient city of Petra. I mean, we shouldn't have advertised it if that's where they're going to flee. That's not where they're going to flee. I don't believe that at all. They're going to flee somewhere, probably in that area, somewhere around En-Gedi, Qumran, somewhere in that area. They're going to flee there. But God's got a space prepared exactly, a perfect place where they can live. I mean, you, one of the most amazing things, when you go to Israel, you go to en and you're in this barren, you're down by the Dead Sea, and you're in this barren wilderness, and then you come up through a little opening about as wide as this church, And you go in and there's this great big open and it's almost like the Garden of Eden in there. There's all of these waterfalls and all of this lush greenery. And you can see how a large group of people, that's where David hid out when Saul was trying to kill him. And you can see where a large group of people could survive in that area. Well, I think God has something even better than that prepared for the nation of Israel. Where is it? You don't know and nobody knows. Because if anybody knew, the devil would know. And if he knew where it was, he would kill them. Look, it can be another dimension. God can flee these people in a general area and open up a wall of another dimension, and they can walk right in there. I personally think it's some great cavern or something uh, hidden in those mountains, much like in Getty. That's what I believe. But we don't know where it's at, and we're not going to know where it's at. Only God knows where it's at. Uh, And and Satan's going to try to find them. Why is Satan so set? on annihilating the Jew. You ever thought about that? Why does he hate the Jew so much? Well, you got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan caused Adam and Eve to fall, you remember what the Lord said. He said, this child, uh, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So he thought if he could kill to destroy the nation, then the woman couldn't bear the child and now the child's been born, and he's tried to destroy the child, and he can't destroy the child, he hates the woman because he knows his destruction is coming. He knows that his time is near. Now, with all of that background, we get something really interesting here. We get another interlude, and there's a lot of, I, I personally think, misinterpretation about this next passage, but I'm going to try to show you Uh, in these next few verses, this interlude that he gives us about the cross, about what happened at the cross. You know, we all kind of simplify what happened at the cross. You know, Christ died for my sins. Well, that's great. I think we should simplify I think uh, if you don't know anything else in this world, you need to know that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross. But some great things happened on that cross some great things up in the heavens, some great things on earth, some some things that we can't even imagine. And he's going to show us that here in these next few verses. So there's some really exciting stuff, so look at it with me. He says, And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now that's very important there, underline that. They didn't have a place in heaven any longer. Now, when Satan fell the first time, did he still have a place in heaven? After he fell, when that fall described sometimes before maybe Adam and Eve were on this earth. I mean, when he fell the first time, did he did he still have a place in heaven? Well, read the book of Job, and you'll see that he did. Because in Job, God asked Satan, where you been? He said, I've been going to and fro from the earth, in between earth and heaven. So he had a place in heaven. But in the event described here, in this war, he no longer has a place in heaven. And then look at verse number 9. So the great dragon, Satan himself, was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast with him. None of them have any access to earth any longer. Now, again, a lot of expositors would say this is the original fall of Satan. Uh, A lot of expositors, a lot of expositors, say that this happens in the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. And if all of these events in Revelation, and here's again where I'll warn you about put trying to put these in chronological order, if they were all given to us in chronological order, then we would have to say that the fall that's described right here of Satan took place, takes place sometime during the Great Tribulation. But I don't believe that. The Bible is very clear that the final exit of Satan from heaven, and I, I think this war took place, to, he, Satan didn't want to leave, and he was made to leave, took place at the cross. It took place at the cross. And I want to make that case for you. And I think that's very clear in the Bible. So go with me in your Bibles over to the book of Colossians. Back up a little bit.
1: Into the New Testament, into the book of Colossians. And all of this will come together if you stick with me here. He says in Colossians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, by the way.
0: Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, because this describes, I don't know if it describes you, but it describes me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and you be dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with him. I love this part right here. Having forgiven you all trespasses. All trespasses. Having even wiped out the law that's against you. Look at the next part. Having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that were against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way. Having nailed it to the cross. The law that is against us, if Satan comes at you and tells you you're not keeping the law, say, I don't have to. It's hanging on the cross. Jesus took it away at the cross. But that's not all that happened here. Look what, look what happens in the next verse. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Now, here's what's funny. Satan's looking at Jesus up on the cross being made a public spectacle. I mean, there he is hanging there on that cross naked, dying for our sins. But it's not Him who's the public spectacle. Look at this. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. That's what He did on the cross. Not only did He save you and I from our sins, He defeated Satan on the cross once and for all. That's why in Luke chapter 10, you remember the story. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. And they come back and they're all excited because they're laying hands on people and they're being healed. But what excited them the most was that they were casting out demons. And Satan said, I mean Satan didn't say it, Jesus said, I, and he was speaking in the context of the cross, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw him fall. His day is done. He's going to have me crucified on the cross, but his day is done. Now, now we'll get even more specific
1: information on this over in the Gospel of John. Go with me to John. And look in chapter number 12. John chapter 12. Look down at verse number twenty-three.
0: You remember the story? Philip brought the Greeks to Philip, and I mean, Jesus brought the uh, Phil, Philip brought the Greeks to Jesus, and this is Jesus really didn't have time to mess with them. I mean, he knew he was about to die in just a few hours. I mean, he knew his he knew that that uh, you know that wasn't the important thing right now. Listen to what he said. But Jesus answered them, saying. The hour has come that the Son of Man shall be glorified. Now, you remember throughout the Gospels, the early part of the Gospels, Jesus, whenever somebody would try to kill Jesus or arrest Jesus, remember what Jesus would say? My hour has not yet come. But here, just before the cross, he says, The hour has come that the Son of Man shall be glorified. How is the Son of Man to be glorified? On the cross. Now, jump down to verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. My whole purpose in existence on this earth at this time is to go to the cross. So I've got to go to the cross. And he says, Father, glorify your name in me. And then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it, was, that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, watch this. This voice did not come because of me. I didn't need to hear the voice. I and the Father are one. It came for your sake. Now watch this. Now. Now now means what in the Greek? Now. Now his hour has come. So now what's he speaking of? He's speaking of the cross. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's he speaking of? Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. When did it happen? Now, at the cross. Was he cast out of the world at the cross? No, Satan is, man, if you believe Satan's been cast out of this world, I don't know what world you're looking at. I don't know what news you're watching. Satan is alive and well on the planet Earth. So he wasn't cast out of the Earth at that point. He was cast out of heaven. And why was he cast out of heaven? Well, go back to Revelation, and I'm going to show you. Really, you should have saw that in, in Colossians. In Colossians, what did it say? How many of your sins have been forgiven? All of your sins. When Satan used to go to and fro to heaven, when he went to and fro to heaven, when he went up to heaven, and what was he doing when, in the presence of God? He was accusing the people. God said, is there any righteous on earth? And, and, and Satan said, no. And he said, well, what about my servant Job? He's pretty righteous, isn't he? He said, well, give me a little time with him and he won't be so righteous. And I really think, some people say Job proved himself to be righteous. I think Job proved himself to be unrighteous. And Job proved himself that he needed the righteousness of God. And so you go back to Revelation chapter 12, and you see, I mean, if in Colossians we're told that all our sins are forgiven, what does Satan have left to accuse us of? Nothing. He has no purpose to be in heaven any longer. And that's exactly what we see right here, because you go to Revelation chapter 12 now. Back to Revelation chapter 12. Let me find my place. And look at verse number 10. He says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, 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 at the cross, salvation has come, and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren, who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. He's been cast down. That's the same thing that Jesus said in John chapter 12. Why was he cast down? Because he no longer has any reason to accuse us. He no longer has any right to accuse us. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, He says, who shall lay a charge against God's people? It is God who justifies us. How does he justify us? Through The blood of Jesus Christ. So there's no longer anything for Satan, no longer anything that Satan can accuse us of. If I'm perfected forever in Jesus Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God. If I have the righteousness of God in Christ, what can Satan accuse me of?
1: Nothing. And so the accuser has been cast down. Where's he been cast down to? Earth.
0: He's been cast down to earth at the cross. He lost all access to heaven. He was cast down to earth. Now, there was something else he
1: learned when about the cross. He learned that he couldn't kill God
0: because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. You think Satan didn't know that he rose from the dead? And then he ascended back to heaven. And so... Going back to this verse here, it says, he says, Now salvation strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. He accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And then
1: uh, he says in verse number 11, and wait, I'm missing something there. He's been cast down. Then verse 11, I was
0: right, I was in verse 11. And they who trust, they, he's talking about those who trust him, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. So he's cast down to earth down. And not only does he hate the Jew for bringing the Christ into this world, he hates you and I, the children of Jesus Christ. And so he says, and they, but they, overcame him, how do we overcome him? Do we overcome him by being tougher than Satan? No. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. What's the word of our testimony? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's Christ that justifies us. We don't justify ourselves. And because of that, we have nothing to fear from Satan. Nothing. He has... Nothing over us anymore. Now, he can harass us. He can attempt us. He can do all sorts of things to make our life miserable. But he cannot hurt us. He has nothing on us anymore. I love what Vance Hebner says along these lines. He says, Satan says to the Christian, I I will give you everything if you will follow me. And the Christian says to Satan, you can't give me anything because I already have everything in Christ. And Satan then says to the Christian, I'll take everything you have. And the Christian says, you can't take anything because I don't have anything but Christ. I mean, what can you do with a man like that? There's nothing you can do with a person like that. So then it says in verse number 12, he says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Uh, But watch this. Where's Satan at now? He's on the earth. But woe! to the inhabitants of the earth and sea. Why? Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. He doesn't have much time left. I mean, when, when Jesus defeated him on the cross and he didn't devour Jesus like he thought he had done and he realized that Jesus has ascended to the throne of God, when he sees that, he knows his time is short. And all he can do is take revenge on God. And how does he take revenge on God? By taking revenge on God's people. That's that's what he wants to do. And so verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth and uh, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. You know what the Holocaust was all about? It was about the devil. You read about Hitler and all his involvement and, and these satanic rituals and that was all a demonic, uh, uh, it was a demonic nation, a demonic uh, uh, leader, and, the, and his, his whole purpose. He wouldn't have lost the war if he had left the Jews alone, but he spent, he spent half his resources trying to kill all the Jews on this earth because he hated the Jews, because he was possessed by a major demon, or is possessed by Satan? And so, since the cross. The persecution of the Jews is only intensified. And uh, why? Because they brought his archenemy into the world. And it's only going to intensify even more in the great
1: tribulation. Now, here's what's really sad. Here's what's really sad to me. In the great tribulation, Antichrist is going riding in on a white horse. He's going to promise Israel
0: peace. He's going to promise the world peace. And the world is going to receive him. Satan incarnate. Can you imagine that? They're going to receive him as their Messiah. And then there's going to be that period of peace, and then the two witnesses are going to be killed. And they're going to try to warn the Israelites. they're not going to listen and until it's too late. and then we know from Zechariah chapter 13 that two-thirds of the Jews of this nation, I mean two-thirds of the Jews of this world will be killed during the Great Tribulation. One-third of the Jews will survive. And, and uh, uh, the only reason they'll survive is because God will save them. Look at how he saves them again. He comes back to that in verse number 14. But the woman was given two wings of an eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. You know, people run in here and grab this and say that that's the planes that are taking Jews to Israel now. That's what's happening now. That, first of all, they're not taking them into the wilderness. They're taking them into Israel. So that's you, you, really taking a passage out of context. But anyway, she says, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time And a time and a half time. What's that? That's the 42 months, that's the three and a half years, 1,260 days, from the presence of the serpent. So it's God who protects us. So the serpent spewed out water, spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by that flood, that he might destroy her. But the earth opens up and it helped the woman. The earth opened up his mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So God is the one who hides Israel during this time. We don't know exactly where he hides her, but that's the only way that that remnant survives. Now, once Israel's hidden, who's left for Satan to destroy? Well, he could destroy, he's taking the whole earth down with him, but most people are on his side at this point. But who's left to be destroyed? The tribulation saints. And that's why you read and see all this is setting up what we're going to read in the last part of Revelation or the next section of Revelation. You're going to see Satan go after these tribulation saints, and he's going to persecute these tribulation saints because the woman now is hidden away so he can't destroy Israel. Verse number 17, and the dragon was enraged with a woman, and he went and made war with the rest of her offspring. Now, how do we know that's Christians? Because they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So they're saved. There's only one kind of person that Satan hates worse than a Jew, and that is you. That is the Christian. He hates Christians. And in the Great Tribulation, he's going to do everything he can to stomp Christianity from this earth. He's not going to have to do too much because it's almost been wiped out as we speak. But those who are left here after the Great Tribulation, there's going to be a lot of people in the Laodicean church that are going to be saved. But they're going
1: to face the greatest persecution the church has ever seen. And so, uh, he's going to come after him, But I got news for you. He hates you and me
0: every much as he hates the Jew and every, much, every bit as much as he hates the tribulation saints. And so he's out to destroy you. And he's out to destroy me. So how does he do that? He tempts us. He accuses us. But that's something, you know, I I, I deal with Christians all the time who allow Satan to really bring them down uh, in condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for it is who can lay a charge against God's elect because you don't justify yourself. It's God who justifies you. So don't let Satan harass you anymore. Resist the devil. He's going to come after you. Resist the devil in this area, and he will flee from you. That's the problem some Christians have. I think that's a problem all of us have at times. But the other thing that Satan tries to do, he tries to draw us away from Christ and into this world. He tries to, here, you got this picture here of God hiding the Israelites during the Great Tribulation. Well, there's a picture now on this earth where God will hide you away from the wrath of Satan. That's if you choose to live in the shadow of God's wing. But if you let Satan draw you out of that shadow, away from that hedge that God has placed around you, by living for this world, you better look out. And I see Christians all the time who, who, you know, I hate, you know, I'm not judging them. But I see them living for this world, and out. I believe they're Christians, they're living for this world, they're living outside that hedge of protection that God has placed there, and then they get themselves into all sorts of trouble because God allows that to get them where? Back under the shadow of his wings. close to him. And if you don't stay close to him, you're going to have problems. If you don't stay in his word, if you don't stay in prayer, if you, don't, if you don't stay as close to the Lord as you possibly can, if you, don't, if you aren't obedient to the Lord, if you're doing, living your life your way for yourself, for nobody else, I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be a price to pay at some point. And you're going to cry out to God, and God's not going to answer you. It doesn't mean you're not saved. But he's going to, he, his purpose in all of that and allowing Satan to come at you will be to draw you back to him. So why get away from the Lord? Real simple, stay close to the Lord. Stay as close to the Lord. We're living in some tough times. And you need to stay as close to the Lord, we need to stay as close to the Lord as we possibly can. Now, if you're here today you say, wow, and you're not saved, you say, man, if Satan's going to attack the Jews and he's going to attack the Christian, well, I don't know, I want to be a Christian or a Jew. I mean, I might rather just be on Satan's side because, if, hey, if, if I'm not in Christ, if I'm not a Jew, then, then uh, I'm not Satan's enemy. Y- you know, to some degree, you're right. But I've got bad news for you. If you're not Satan's enemy, you're God's enemy. You're at enmity with God. And you better, let me tell you what, you better fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell more than you need to fear him who can destroy your body. Satan is your enemy, but you don't want Satan and and God as your enemy. Satan will leave you alone if you're following following his ways. But if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, time is short. We need to all be doing everything we can to get close to the Lord. And it's real simple. It's real simple. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Let's go to the Lord and pray.
1: Father, we just thank you for what you teach us here. And, Lord, we thank you most of all that in Jesus Christ we've been given your righteousness. And there's nothing
0: left left that Satan can accuse us of. Lord, he can draw us away from you. He can can make us worldly Christians. He can... uh, drag us out from the sh- beneath the shadow of your wings. Uh, if we al- but only if we allow him to do that. So, Lord, I ask today that all of us see the re- that there's a reality, that Satan exists, Lord, that his demons exist, that they have been defeated by you. And so now they're spewing out their wrath on this world, and they're trying to do everything they can to destroy our nation, to destroy our society, to destroy our families to destroy us. Lord, but your word's very clear. If we'll stay close to you, Lord, you'll protect us. You'll protect us from Satan's wrath. You'll protect us from uh, the destruction that Satan can bring into our families and into our lives. So, Lord, help us to be mindful, uh, uh, always, Lord, mindful of your presence in our lives. And, Lord, help us to seek you first in all that we do. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus is their savior today, Lord. Make it clear to them that they're at enmity with you, and that uh, that's not a very healthy place to be, Lord. Uh, uh, and what a wonderful thing it is to know that that uh, in Christ all our sins are forgiven, Lord. That uh, uh, in you uh, there are blessings available that that uh, this world can't offer forever, Lord. Forever. Uh, in Christ. And we just thank you for our Savior. And it's a precious name that I pray. Amen.